Hello and welcome to the Law Life Balance podcast with me, your host, Caitlin McPhee. The Law Life Balance podcast is here to help drive much needed change in the legal industry. We all know that lawyer well-being is at an all-time low and mental well-being is a particular concern. Sadly, one in 10 lawyers under 30 globally are experiencing thoughts of suicide and that is just not okay. But all is not lost. There are so many incredible people out there fighting to make the legal industry a happier and more sustainable place to work. And it is my mission to track them down and interrogate them on this podcast. So in season one, I'm speaking to thought leaders in the legal mental wellbeing space about what we can do to make lawyers' lives that little bit, or even a lot, better. Hello everyone and welcome back to episode eight of the Law Life Balance podcast. I can't believe it, episode eight already, that feels like it's come around really quickly. This week joining me is William Doherty. Some of you might know him, some of you won't, but William is the founder of an extremely exciting and innovative new legal tech company called Capacity. No points for guessing what that one's all about. He's recently left his position as an IP lawyer at Denton's in order to focus on this full time. And we had such an interesting conversation. I think if I listed out everything that we cover in this episode, it would be almost as long as the episode itself. So I won't. Suffice it to say that if you're interested in understanding why William decided to set up his legal tech company, the problems that he's trying to solve, and what some of the solutions are to these problems that he really thinks could make the profession one that really celebrates diversity, equality, and mental well-being then you really, really need to listen to the full episode. So many nuggets of wisdom in here. Without further ado, this is William. Well, thank you so, so much for agreeing to be here today. How are you doing, first and foremost? Good, yeah. As I said, I'm a bit nervous. First time I've done a podcast. Um, I'm actually uh, doing a few over the course of the next few weeks. Um, So for anyone listening you probably won't need to listen to any other ones because I'll probably just be a broken record. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, excited. Uh, having a good week so far. What about yourself? Amazing. Yeah, good too, thank you. I'm also doing well. Yeah, it's been a bit of a busy time just trying to like juggle a lot of things and spin a few plates. But um, I'm actually on annual leave next week, so I'm looking forward to that. Albeit nice. going on a course, but you know, it'll be fine. What course are you doing? Uh, NLP, it's Neuro Linguistic Programming. Nice. So it's cool. like the next step up in my, you know, upskilling myself and how to actually help lawyers be a bit happier in their life. Fantastic. So yeah. Great. Um, so there are going to be a lot of people on here who don't know you as well as I do. So for the benefit of those people, can we have a little bit of an introduction to you? And can you also cover off a bit of your route into law? Yeah, great. Um, so I suppose, I guess if I start with my route into law, um, it was quite conventional in many respects, um, but also clueless. So I, uh, I just sort of fell into law uh, from a bit of guidance from people at school, sort of saying, based on the subjects I did and the things that I seemed to like at school, it would be a good idea. Um, they were wrong. I didn't enjoy doing a law degree. Um, I didn't. I, I just found it uh, to be uh, not very practical. Um, just sort of learning cases, memorizing information. And it almost felt like uh, you could just do the night before sort of learning. So it was like, you just need to remember as much as possible and then never remember it again. And it's not very useful, mm-hmm. but actually um, enjoyed it enough and saw enough of a challenge in it and sort of learned enough in my time there to realize that the job was quite different, I suppose, than the degree, um, much more practical, solving actual problems. Um, and so when I finished law um much to my surprise people had already got jobs i was Mm. from a family of people who'd never been to university uh didn't really i mean they were supportive i don't want to come on in here and just complain Uh, (laughs) but they're they're very supportive but it's just they didn't really have any guidance for me or any wisdom Mm. to impart so i just sort of bumbled away through the degree graduated on graduation day people were talking about these training contracts and jobs they had uh, and all these summer placements they had lined up and all this kind of thing. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've, I've, I've made a wrong turn somewhere, I, th- I think. Uh, so I better try to figure this out. So quite swiftly after graduating, um, started looking at what I actually needed to do to get a job. And everything I read online was like, 
do not just apply everywhere, like do way less uh, applications, do very focused applications. And I just ignored that advice. Um, I, so I just applied, I had like a, um, a booklet from some open day that a friend gave me when they heard about my predicament. <laughs> uh, and it was like an A to Z. And I just started at A and started applying to as many firms as I could before the deadline. I think I had like two weeks. Wow. So it was like study mode. It was like serious. Uh, two weeks solid uh, of just applying to different firms. I created a template and then I basically had um, identified parts of the application that I would then customize. And then I would just be like square brackets, insert something about firm sort of thing. <laughs> so I did the like throw stuff at the wall until it sticks. <laughs> this is a polite way to say it. Um, and luckily got a couple of interviews, got two or three interviews, got a couple of job offers. And by the time I had those job offers, I, I still didn't know anything really about the job or the firms. Um, so I asked a friend's advice on which one I should take. And that's how I ended up in law at Denton's. So that's a bit, it's not the, not the best story to tell people who want to get into law because it's, I've got nothing helpful to, to, to advise people. It's like, don't do what I did. Like it was not the right way to do it. Um, I think I probably just got quite lucky to be honest. Um, and, and that's how I sort of got into it. But I guess more generally, um, I, I'm from a small town in Scotland. Um, as I said, neither of my parents went to university. Uh, when I was growing up, they actually ran a nursing home. Um, so I basically grew up in a nursing home because we sort of um, spent time before school there. I had my lunches there because the school was across the road. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'd go there after school. And then that was sort of my first job as well. And then so going to university was a big deal, leaving a town. My family are all Irish, so they grew up in an even more rural environment than I did. Um, so coming to London was a big deal for me at the end of university, starting this job. Had never been in an office, had never worn a suit, um, didn't know anything about this kind of etiquette or how to behave, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I think that sort of worked to my advantage almost and in, in where I am now. Um, so for those that don't know, I've sort of recently transitioned out of law into legal tech and started my own uh, legal tech startup. And I've just gone full time on that uh, a couple of months ago now. So I, I sort of came down, uh, did my training contract, did two years, and then I did almost two years um, as an associate in the TMT department in London. And in that time, um, I, I started my own business while working um, as a lawyer, which obviously is something that you've done as well, which I think mm -hmm. is great. Uh, obviously, a lot of hard work, um, but I think we've both probably, in a way, benefited a bit from coronavirus, um, having yeah. all that extra time and nothing else to do. Um, so, yeah, I started this as a trainee uh, and have been slowly growing it over the last few years and now sort of taking the plunge. And that's where I am sort of now. That's amazing. Well, I mean, I think you were already a lawyer before your time if you were square bracketing at the age of whatever you know when you graduated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's obviously the key to your success. And any advice to any <laughs> aspiring lawyers out there, learn to square, square bracket. <laughs> You'll yeah, be fine. It's, it's very, very helpful. <laughs> it is extremely helpful. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. It's, I mean, it's quite a leap, isn't it, from like small town in Scotland to law in London to founding legal tech company. What do your parents think about that? Um, I think, well, my mum, both my parents, I suppose, are a bit entrepreneurial in the sense yeah. that, like, I would say it's mostly my mum and she'll be very pleased to hear that. Um, my dad, <laughs> my dad was technically the owner um, of the nursing home. Um, I, I, but my, because uh, my mum was obviously, she's raising four kids. Mm -hmm. uh, she had a lot to do. My mum then ended up opening like a cafe and a couple of cafes now in Scotland. Um, a shout out to Tilly Tea Room. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think she's always sort of saw that in me as well. I was the kid at school who um, would sort of buy cakes at the cake sale and then sell them later and stuff. Mm. Like now you just look at it, it's like so ridiculous. But um, at the time I just had that like, I don't know, whatever that is, um, that interest in that side mm. of things. And uh I actually um, remember we we had like a business at school as a year group in primary four, I think, or we say business, right? Mm -hmm. We were decorating vases and like candle tea light holders. 
and we had to apply for certain positions within the the company structure. Oh wow! And uh, I applied for the managing director position, which effectively involved phoning Tesco and asking if they would uh, give us some free plastic bags to give to people with the stuff they bought. But it was the most nerve wracking call of my life to this day. Like I pitched to some of the biggest law firms in the world and yeah. meet all of these people where you feel quite nervous to speak to them and you don't waste people's time and you want to. Uh, uh, make sure the call goes well but still that was the most terrifying thing I've ever done um, at the ripe age of like nine um, so I don't know like I've I've sort of been in, um, interested in, in entrepreneurship I started a web design business at uni to try and fund myself to go study abroad wow. um, there's opportunities to go on an exchange year to Australia I can really afford it so I need to find ways to try to make that happen I suppose so me and my flatmates started doing web design and I literally scoured the streets of Glasgow speaking to businesses. At this time, not everyone had a website. Mm. Um, so that's what we were trying to do. And then when I finished university between starting my job at, at Denton's um, and finishing studies, I actually started a personal training business with a friend. So we just bought whiteboards and speakers and made Facebook group and started building a business. And we ended up with, I think, 300 members. Wow. Um, yeah, within six months. So, um, yeah, I think... It all sounds a bit mad when you say it the way that you do, <laughs> but like I feel like small steps in that direction just build your confidence um, to the state where, yeah, you eventually are trying to build a business that's trying to serve like big law firms and provide technology mm. and and so just baby steps, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the way to do it. that's an amazing story. I love that. So you clearly have some kind of innate drive to to do your own thing, right? And yeah. to and to put yourself out there and that confidence that you need. And now obviously you're doing that in the legal tech space. So can you tell us a little bit more about what it is that you're currently doing? Yeah, great. So I'm I I'm building a, a business uh, around a product called Capacity. Um, for those in the legal industry, you'll probably have some idea already of that one word, um, mm. what we're doing. But basically, we're trying to solve issues around work allocation, and it's quite an age-old problem really in law um but the the interesting thing about work allocation is it's a key connector through a law firm so it sort of touches on so many other business functions and can therefore have the power to solve a raft of issues so we're not only looking at like how do we make work allocation more efficient and fair and things like this we're also looking at how we can address issues around unconscious bias and give equal opportunity to people uh, across the business so you don't just have favoritism and that perpetuating itself as people move up through uh, the ladder in the business and also things like mental health, which is obviously why we're speaking today. So monitoring um, basically uh, people and their workloads, making sure they're not too overworked, making sure they have the opportunity to work with different people, they have more say over the work that they do, and then, uh, so we're really trying to tackle some of what I see as the biggest issues with the industry, because I think legal work is fantastic and there's so many amazing things about being a lawyer. But the, the biggest issue in the industry, I think, is just a cultural one. Mm. Um, and I sort of I can understand why the industry has gotten itself in the state that it has. But I think now we have the opportunity through technology to actually start addressing these problems that have maybe actually been brought about by technology. I mean, if you look mm. at how did law used to operate? You used to probably get a letter, right? And you would send off a reply and you wouldn't expect to hear back for like a week or two. But now with email and telephones and this always on culture, uh, all these issues have been created. And so it's about trying to say, okay, we've gone a bit too far and how can we take a step back and start addressing some of these problems that technology has created for us? Um, so that's where we come in. We're trying to improve uh, the culture within businesses by tackling work allocation and seeing it as an opportunity to really tackle some some big big problems mm. um so i guess that's a quick overview of what we're mm. up to that's amazing and i yeah i just think that's really great insight that as obviously life has developed and technology has developed things happen a lot more quickly in the sense that work comes in more quickly but yeah. work currently doesn't get out as quickly as it comes in and so you've got lawyers working more hours because there's more work to do without the tools that they need in order to get that done in a more efficient way. Yeah, exactly. And what was your, I suppose, personal driver behind capacity? Is there like a, a story that you have on a personal level that was the reason that you said to yourself one day, 
right, that's it. I've, I've got to do something and this is what I'm going to do. I would say that there was, but it wasn't the moment that we started working on it. I would say the moment we realized we really wanted to uh, do this uh, came later. So the idea firstly came about just because um, I found myself uh, sitting around waiting for work um, and uh, I'd be told to, to go and do a walk around, go and speak to people, ask them if they need any help. And that's fine. And obviously um, it's nice to go and speak with everyone in the team. But what I found was most of the time people are super busy and they don't really have time for you just dropping in randomly to mm. start chatting at any random time in the day. That's just not how it works. People have got deadlines, urgent work. So you'd sort of walk around, you'd get the sense that for some people, yeah, it's nice to chat. For some people, they're a bit too busy. Um, and most people in the moment would not know really whether you could help them. So you'd be like registering that you're available and then going off and not actually leaving with any work. So mm -hmm. most of the time I would probably then walk around the whole team because I'd found no work yet. Maybe speak with 50, 60 people and then I'd arrive back at my desk without anything. And then at that stage, you're like, okay, well, I've potentially just wasted like half an hour of my time and a few minutes of every single person I spoke to. And when you measure time and money, quite literally in law firms, you can actually calculate how much that costs. And then a further problem happens, which is where um, it's like London buses. Like now that you've told 60 mm -hmm. people you're available, all of a sudden when, when work does crop up or when they spend the time to think about whether you could actually help them, then everyone comes at once. Oh, I know that feeling so well. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like it, it, it discourages you because you have no means to to say no at that stage. I would yeah. say like there's very few, and I don't know if you found this, but certainly with most junior lawyers I speak to across all firms. So this is not just one firm. Um, mm. there, there's this uh, impression that you can't really say no um, mm. and that it's not okay to say no. And that's that's not really great <laughs> I mean mm. to to feel like that I remember uh, one time um someone came to offer me some work and I started telling them what I had on and I was telling them that because I was so inexperienced at that time that I didn't know whether I could help with what they wanted me to help with because I didn't know how long the other stuff would take and they just sort of rolled their eyes at me and were like um just like take the work like figure it out sort of thing and at that stage I, that was when the penny dropped it's like you just have to sort of figure it out for yourself. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just with walkarounds. I speak to lots of firms who use different smart sheets where they populate things once a week. And the junior lawyers say the same thing. It's like, I don't want to say I'm available on Monday and then still be getting work on that basis on Friday. Yeah, I could be like the busiest person in the team by that stage. And now there's no way for me to change that or update that. So people are actually afraid to be honest about the status of their availability because yeah. they know that there's no real systems in place to sort of rein that in. So that's sort of the, that was where the idea came from. Um, but it's not the thing that really got me excited and made me think like, I want to do this. I want to quit my job. I want to dedicate myself to mm -hmm. these problems. It was more um, when my partner who's a neuroscientist and is sort of one of our um, sort of board members, I suppose, um, she's quite involved with the business. She Whenever we were looking at how to design the best solution to work allocation, we wanted to uh, create a, a, a system that would actually make people happier at work. I mean, why not, right? Like if you're, if you're going to build something, why should that not be the main consideration or one of the main yeah. considerations? If you can solve an efficiency in like 10 ways, surely you should pick the one that people are going to be happiest with, right? Mm -hmm. So we sort of... Um, I don't want to say the word begged, but uh, I guess it's it's appropriate. We sort of begged her to help us. We're like, please, can you can you help us figure out what people really care about uh, in a professional environment? And so she went away and did a lot of research and prepared like a dossier of reports and wow. uh, all of this data for us. And what she what she found was that people care most about autonomy. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, autonomy correlates with happiness two times more strongly than pay, flexible working working yeah. environment all that stuff that businesses already do and factor mm. in but it seems like businesses are not really looking at autonomy and mm. and I, th I think it's like the silver the silver bullet to, to a lot of these problems to be honest and so when, when she came back with that we started doing an exercise of trying to design a process that would actually maximize autonomy for the people doing the work 
Mm-hmm. And once we sort of cracked that, that is when I just became so excited by this because it unlocked so many other things. It, it, it showed me that this this system and these processes could help address mental health. It could help address unfair and, and disproportionate access to opportunities for people within the working environment. And um, at the moment, there's there's such a large interest in these problems, um, particularly at the moment, actually, the diversity inclusion piece law firms are sort of clambering over themselves to try to, to solve this problem. And for any people um, listening, like hiring is not the answer in case that's not obvious to people yet. Like when you look at the statistics, the Law Society uh, has actually done a report on this and it shows that um, there's like 21% um, black and Asian lawyers in the industry, but only 8% partners. Mm. And uh, black and Asian lawyers actually leave their positions um, more frequently and quicker than um, their white counterparts. And so there's like real systemic issues here. There's real cultural problems and there's systems in place that actually prevent these people from progressing in this Mm. career and uh, they become disenfranchised and actually leave. And so I think for me, this idea of like autonomy and that's ability to address mental health and that's ability and that's ability to address diversity inclusion challenges was what really got me excited. And and that's when we really decided it was something that we just had to do and something we thought we could really contribute to the industry by, by building. So that's sort of where we're at, but it wasn't like, that was a fully formed thing at the time and this mm. eureka moment it's it's something that's born out of a lot of hard work and a lot of research and we're being led by the data like we're yeah. not we're not sort of building a platform and then trying to use these things as marketing techniques to sell the thing like these are the foundational principles that go into the design of the product mm. and i know you've actually helped us with some of that stuff so i think you've probably seen that firsthand how we approach building the software and building the solution. And I think that's really core to how we want to sort of run as a business and, and, and core to our product. Yeah, I just think it's amazing. I think it's an amazing idea. I have every confidence it's going to be wildly successful. I love the point around, you know, happiness. And one of the key proponents of happiness in an organization is this sense of autonomy. And I recently just read The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker. I don't know if you've read it. Oh, it's brilliant. You should. And he's got this one, like he's got loads of amazing bits in there, but one bit that I remember is in a nursing home, funnily enough, (laughs) they had, um, he did it. They did a study where they gave nursing home residents autonomy over caring for their houseplants. And that was the only thing they were given to do, but it was your job is to keep your houseplants alive and mortality rates cut in half just from that one act, because it's not necessarily having autonomy over everything it's having a sense of control over your life that makes all the difference in happiness and the other the other thing that I love about that book which is kind of the central message is that happiness is actually a precursor to success Hmm. so success comes after happiness not the other way around and we've so often thought that if I am successful I will be happy incorrect if I am happy I'm far more likely to be successful yeah, that's that's great. I mean, I, I I had a fortune cookie at the weekend. I had a Chinese, <laughs> and in it, it basically made the point that hard work is a precursor to luck. Yeah, so absolutely. I said like luck is where hard work meets opportunity. It yeah. said, and I actually kept it. I put it. I was like, this is a normally fortune cookie. I'm like, oh, this is funny. But I actually kept. It. I was like, wow, that's really insightful. Yeah. Like because you look at people who you'd say are like you say successful, or in that mm-hmm. case, lucky. And it's very easy to get caught up on the surface and look at like, what can I observe that person has or what their life looks like? And that then gives you an indicator of, okay, well, maybe if I have those things, I'll be happy or uh, whatever that might be. But actually it's the inside thing that's the most important thing, right? So like, and that's so intangible. You can, you can sort of see that in other people, but it's very hard. People can smile and you can't tell how they're feeling. So Yeah. yeah, I think, I think that that's so true. And, and I think like, all of the studies as well, like it's so easy to to talk about this in, in the sense of um, businesses have a moral obligation, businesses have a duty of care. And I do believe both of those things very strongly. Mm. Um, but that's not how businesses are structured to operate. They're, 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 they're there for profit, right? So mm-hmm. um, you have to look at um, the data and the language that these businesses speak. And ultimately, thankfully, uh, it all aligns and it, mm. and it, and then the business case is just like incredible for for prioritizing these things and so mm. i think it's just 
it's just change. Businesses are, are averse to risk and to change. And so um, these ideas are quite new and quite novel, but I think that it is where every, everything should be headed. And I think we will start to see businesses prioritize these things ahead. It's like putting the cart before the horse almost if you prioritize profit over the happiness of your staff, which people like BrewDog, for example, will be finding out at the moment yeah. with everything that's coming yeah. out. And it's like your reputation as well as everything. And so you've got to look after your staff and you, you should be treating people well. And actually what you'll find is it's an investment in your business. Um, so yeah, I, co- I completely agree with that. And it's really interesting. I'd like to read that book. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely should. He says another interesting point on luck, which is I agree about the hard work, but also that the difference between a lucky and an unlucky person is that a lucky person believes they are lucky. And that is it. Like because you're primed then to look out for opportunity. And you're yeah. also primed to take risk because you believe that the outcome of taking that risk will be good. Yeah. And, exactly. and that's so important. Like in a in a in a legal context in our industry, we're typically quite risk averse. And yeah. I think there's a huge piece around the fact that as lawyers, we're trained to look for problems. We're trained to see conflict. We're trained to, to thrive in conflict. And that that works in some contexts. But if you if you extrapolate that into the rest of your life, all of a sudden that becomes extremely problematic. Yeah. So I, I think it's so important to, to start to be able to add, add in a little bit more space for risk-taking, a little bit more safety and that sense of control, as you've said, in order to give lawyers that sense of purpose and direction and control because those are the yeah. things if you don't have that have a hugely negative impact on your well-being yeah no exactly and i mean i'm actually writing something about this at the moment about how humans are are actually um at, at a default level um don't like change mm. and so there's loads of uh, science around this and then when you layer on top of that the point you've just made about lawyers being trained to be risk averse mm. then you've got like a human who is programmed to resist change and then a lawyer who's programmed to like identify scary things <laughs> and, to, and to just be really aware of those things and so it's no wonder I think that the industry has been one of the last ones to be disrupted mm. and then you obviously combine these things um, and maybe we won't want to get too much into this but with the billable hour mm. um, and then it's just you've got a bit of a recipe for disaster when it comes to trying to innovate and trying to change and trying to keep some of these core values at the center of how you do business when Mm. it's like everyone's just I suppose paralyzed a bit in the sense that we're doing really well I am financially like um, business is going well like where's the incentive to change Mm. and so I think the key thing will be law firms and lawyers taking the reins to say that actually when looking at KPIs and when setting KPIs we need to reimagine what what success looks like Mm -hmm. um it's like you're saying around um happiness being a precursor to success it's like are you really successful if you're turning six seven figures but you're miserable and you're you're not enjoying Mm -hmm. your job and all these things and obviously i'm not suggesting that everyone in that position is but it seems from the studies and the reports um particularly the ones that have come out by junior lawyers that overwhelmingly junior lawyers are dissatisfied working Mm. in law overwhelmingly junior lawyers are not enjoying being lawyers Mm. um yet find it hard to leave for all of these reasons that we just described around people not liking change people being risk averse what if i lose my job Mm. these uncertain times all these things but but in that sense it's like okay well um we need to look at ourselves as an industry and see how we can be constructive mm-hmm. and solve these problems rather than just putting profit first um and it's my belief that in putting these other things first and again the science suggests that the profit will come later anyway so it's not a sacrifice it's yeah. just an, it's just an investment yeah um so yeah it's it's an exciting time i think and i think there's, so there's people like you who are going full time on trying to to bring about this change and and speak about these problems and people are obviously listening Mm. so I think um, it's just going to be one of these things where in 20 years you look back as a back at it as a society and you're like oh I can't believe people did this that or the other or I hope it's going to be a lot less than 20 years yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean fingers crossed (laughs) so you talked a little bit there about you know having potentially some different KPIs to measure and if, if I said to you, what would some of those KPIs be that you think should, we should be measuring instead, what would you say? 
Um, so I've got a few ideas just off the top of my head, I suppose. There's some that I've thought about more uh, uh, extensively, but some that are just cropping up as we speak. But I suppose uh, the first one for me would be uh, around working with diverse people. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's, it's, it's too easy to get caught up working on with the same people on the same projects and there's obviously benefits around that you you get to know someone you develop these relationships but the the negative impacts of that i think outweigh the positives to be frank i mean the average person sort of gets swept up and then just caught along with someone else's career and then mm-hmm. sort of steps into their shoes and in and, and those examples, you lack that autonomy that we just spoke about. So I think uh, teams should be setting KPIs around trying to work with more of their teammates. That will help create a more inclusive environment, create a more of a team environment. Uh, I think there should be KPIs around um, actually taking time off and stuff like that. Like, I don't think it should be encouraged or glorified to be working weekends and working mm-hmm. holidays. I don't think it's good for anyone. Um, So I think you should be actively encouraged to take those things. And for example, like with time recording, you have this device that's tracking when you're working, how long you're working, right? So I think if if people are working consistently long hours, then that should be flagged and something should be addressed and there should be remedial action taken to either give people days off in lieu for that kind of thing or to just just point blank prevent it ahead Mm. of time like monitor it and prevent it so i think trying not to work past 10 p.m maybe more than x times in a year might be a nice kpi stuff Mm. like that like try to actually uh not just um i i suppose not promote bad uh habits but actually promote good ones um and then other things i suppose are just around like personal development i um one of the my biggest, uh, I suppose, complaints or grievances, I suppose, uh, working in law was just the lack of feedback. You will spend 10 hours uh, drafting an agreement. You'll send it to your supervisor who will sort of review it, mark it up and send it on. And then you'll just see the markup they've made. So you'll see the differences between what you suggested and what they suggested. And a lot of the time, and it's not people's fault, they're super busy, they're very stressed, um, they have a lot of responsibility and a lot of other things to be doing. So I can completely understand why this is the case. But ultimately, it's not good for your development to see all of this red line, feel like, oh, I've made all of these mistakes and not know why the changes were made or whether they were changes that you could have spotted or whether they're things that that person could have spotted because they had additional information or context or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I feel like um, there's just not enough feedback and there's not enough um, sort of personal development. And so I think setting more clear targets around those things. Um, I don't know what your experience was, but uh, at Denton's you would sort of set targets for the year. And to be honest, um, it may just be because I wasn't very good at this, uh, but they're quite intangible things like skill up in this area or try to gain some abstract um, benefit in that area or Mm -hmm. whatever it might be. Whereas I think it would be much more helpful to be like, right, you need to get 50 hours of uh, data protection experience. You need to get um, 500 more hours of drafting experience for commercial contracts. You need to get 20 more hours of negotiation on your Mm -hmm. own where you're actually doing the negotiation like real tangible things that can be tracked, measured, reported on, and give you much more of a sense of of purpose. So these are like key performance indicators, right? So like if I then get all of those things you told me to get, it should be pretty irrelevant whether I work these mental hours because ultimately those hours are not dictated by me. Those are dictated by the people whose job it is to win business. So what happens if the partners aren't bringing in the work all of a sudden I'm being penalized, even though I'm doing everything I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have no control over that. So, yeah. um, and it's not about a bonus. It's uh, like, frankly, I, my view is that we're paid more than enough in law. Um, it's not about mm-hmm. having some, some extra bit of cash at the end of the year. It's about giving the employee a sense of purpose, yeah. a target goals and something they can actually attain rather than just being sort of dragged from, task to task, project to project, and not really feeling um, like you've hit some goal or you've yeah. attained some target or you, you've you had some success to celebrate. And 
So yeah, that those are like on a personal level. And then on a project-wide level, I think people should be more connected with the client's goals, even yeah. if they have a smaller part to play in the project. So I think it's just about sharing those with the team and having them front and center where you can see them, you can access them, and you can try to align your work with those goals. Mm. And so for me, it's just trying to create a working environment that perpetuates a sense of purpose and actually gives people... Um, something they can work towards look to and measure rather than just having like a binary um hours target which frankly in most firms is um i don't know i always say that i I see it more as an apology rather than a bonus it's like sorry you had to work this much here's some money rather than well done you did an amazing job here's a bonus for your performance so uh, yeah i just think like a lot of law firms sort of look at how to to reward staff in the wrong way and think like i mean you've seen these american firms that have just topped up was it two hundred thousand dollars or something for nqs disgusting yeah, yeah. hundred and forty six thousand pounds yeah for an nq salary and it's like i don't know my view would always be um i would rather be working 20 percent less hours and 20 percent less pay there's yeah. there's a there's a threshold where just money makes no difference to me and yeah. so the other things around having time and having mm-hmm. a sense of purpose and having creative freedom to yeah. innovate or do any of these things would have been way bigger incentives for me yeah. than than money ever could be so yeah i don't know kpis around those kinds of things i think yeah. would would go a long way in, in law firms Oh, so many good things in there. And you're so right about the financial incentive piece, because I mean, the science shows that the financial incentive will never, ever be enough for somebody to sacrifice their happiness and their well-being. It just won't. And it isn't right, because if it was, lawyers wouldn't leave the law, but they do in droves because there comes a point when no amount of money is going to be enough. And I know that there are a lot of people who do think that it's worth it for the short-term sacrifice. And sure, it can it can really help you to set yourself up in life, to buy a property, et cetera, et cetera. But at what cost? Yeah. And how many people get to the end of however many years they've spent crucifying themselves for great financial reward, only to have absolutely no reason, no idea, sorry, what they actually enjoy, what they now want to do next. And it often becomes oh, well, okay, I'll take some time and figure it out. And there's no clear sense of direction. And that in itself is extremely stressful. So you're so right that actually finding a sense of purpose at work where you are now should be the bigger driver. And the reward should be around helping people to do that. You know, rewarding people who've clearly found something that they enjoy and are dedicating themselves to becoming very good at that. People who are protect... I, I like the concept of rewarding... Um, and giving positive incentive for healthy practices. Like I remember when I went on clients to comment, they had um, something that measured the protected hours it was called in your calendar and you would get a streak. So it kind of gamified how many (laughs) days in a row you had kept your protected hours protected. So no calls, no meetings in the diary in those protected hours. And it was, it was a game in the end. You'd be like, oh, I'm doing really well on my, mel- on my mental well-being streak. Yeah. And I think that's something we could so easily do. There is absolutely no reason that we need to be responding to emails at 10 p.m. at night. Like, there just isn't. It's, there- bad, it's bad manage management. Um, and it's, it's letting the client expectations run riot. And I, mm. I think, like, I, again, like, I get it. I do get it. And, well, I get it as far as I feel possible when I've not been a partner, right? Though I'm yeah. sure there'll be partners listening who are like, look, you, you, guys, you guys don't get it. And, and fair enough. <laughs> yeah, um, agreed. Please, please reach out and contact me. And I'd love to talk more about it. And, I'm, mm. and I just want to learn. But from, from my understanding of the situation, it's not that these partners are ill managing the clients. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm mm. suggesting is that as a industry, we've allowed the yeah. situation to get to, to, to the place where the clients are doing that. And because we are responding and so concerned about losing the client, mm-hmm. then um, we just do whatever we possibly can or need to, to, to meet those demands because there's that fear that you'll lose the client. And but I, also... I, is the client ever making that demand? Have we ever gone to the client and said, do you understand that this request means that these individual people are going to have to work through the night? 
and this is going to have this impact on them. Do you, do you want to do it this way or would you like to do it a different way? Have we ever asked that question? Yeah, I, I don't know, but I, I do know that clients have received emails from me at four in the morning and said, woken up at nine and just said, thanks. Yeah. So I don't know if it's so simple to to think that if we if we explicitly call it out, maybe you're right. Maybe there's an element to which, like, if you point out the ramifications, like explicitly, and make the person opt into those, mm. then that maybe changes the conversation a bit. But certainly, I, I clients know the ramifications. Maybe maybe calling them out on it would have a different impact. But maybe again, partners would say, "Well, that will just lose us." the client right mm-hmm. we, we like these degrees of abstraction where we don't know the consequences of our action and many people will actually say that part of the service when you go to a lawyer is like you're outsourcing a problem and part of why you pay so much for that service is not just to solve the problem but it's to not even know like the grunt work and mm. the amount of stress and strain that goes into solving it and you've just offloaded all of that it's like, I don't care I don't want to know just solve it give me the answer and so there's an argument to be made that that is what you're paying for. And that's fine. But there, there are certain law firms. Um, there's one that uh, my head of department used to always reference. I've forgotten their name, but um, was it Wad- Waddell or something like this? I can't remember. But anyway, this, this firm was so popular that they turn away work. They turn away something like nine of every 10 approaches for instructions. Wow. And it's because they are so good. And so um, he was always very focused on like, that's what, where we want to be. We want to be in a position where like, we pick the work we do. We pick yeah. the clients we want to work with. And I, I always respected that because I thought that's saying, look, we value the work we're doing. We value ourselves. And like, we want to uh, uh, exude excellence rather mm-hmm. than just like go chasing after every single piece of work, no matter what the cost. So I don't know. I think it's a complex issue. Um but I, again, like I'm always coming back to work allocation as a solution for these things, because mm-hmm. ultimately, if you have more oversight over availability and you have more oversight over um, certain other data sets, then you can make better decisions to ensure that, OK, maybe the client's being unreasonable. But instead of that, meaning whoever's on this project working all night, it might mean that if we can get ahead of these lines of communications, get ahead of these problems and have oversight over our team, then we can just pull in people ahead of these time and get ahead of these problems rather than it just being like, okay, well, it's occurred and it's sort of blindsided us and we didn't know it was coming and now mm. we just have to bear the brunt of it. So I don't know. I think it's a really, a really complex problem, but I think um, it can be solved. Um, but I think those people whose buy-in is required are so busy doing the work um, that that not enough time is, is spent on them. Um, on trying to reimagine the delivery of legal services so mm. that's where people like us vendors come in or or maybe um firms should be trying to um take a step back sometimes to, to assess these things which many of them are doing through uh, innovation teams operation teams legal project managers being brought in which is all fantastic mm. um but but there are still some who who don't really have these functions and are are, are probably lagging behind um mm. f- for that reason so yeah i don't know it's, it's a tough one isn't it i mean what do you think what do you think would be the if one change could have occurred for you in the legal environment what do you think would have made the biggest impact to you day to day it's really hard to say isn't it i think if it was a change that was something that I didn't have any control over, it would be something around the billable hour and how lawyer performance is measured. Because I think one of the things that I found the most difficult was that there was no, um, nobody took account of the variation in how people work. Yeah. So the speed people work, people's efficiency levels, people's concentration time, you know, it might take somebody you know, the same amount of time, but over a longer period because they need more breaks to do the work. Mm. But should that person be evaluated in a different way from somebody who did the work in a shorter period of time overall with fewer breaks, um, just because that's a way that they work differently. And I think that's something I struggled with because, you know, I, I'm somebody who can concentrate for long periods and work very efficiently. And I did that so that I could have time outside of work. But all that ended up meaning was that I ended up having lower utilization and lower time spent in the office, which ended up not working very well for me. So 
I think that would be probably one of the key things that I would want to see changed is like more flexibility for how people can do their work. Mm. People need different things at different times in the day. Yeah, hundred percent. It's like in any, in any job, I guess the traditional model has been like, we want an archetype mm. and the, the role of hiring is to find people who meet that archetype. But I feel like in a modern business, there's m- more of a recognition around the value of diversity and the value of having people with different skill sets. And so then appreciating like you're going to, if you want the full benefit of that, you've got to to have a bit of give in, in other respects and say like whatever is a strength in one respect for that person is going to probably have a corresponding weakness. Totally. And, and that's fine. And you, and, and you take that as part of the whole package. Mm. I think to be frank in, in my at work for me, I, I, I occasionally got comments around utilization rates, but it was very few and far between considering what my numbers were. Mm. Um, and I didn't work crazy, crazy hours most of the time. And so, um, I, I thought that was okay on, on my side. Um, uh, but I was spending a lot of time trying to do other things like, mm. um, writing thought leadership or doing like internal app development and stuff like yeah. that. So I feel like, maybe when those things are uh, seen then you get a bit more slack whereas in your example like why should you sort of be penalized for just being super efficient at the work well and also to have the other stuff that you are potentially doing not being recognized as as important so you know as you just said if because you are good at app development and writing thought leadership you can do that as well as your chargeable work as an as an overall person and member of the team which is the firm should you not be just as valuable as somebody who doesn't like any of the other stuff but just does more chargeable work even though i get it you know you're not the you're not fee earning as much as they are but you're increasing the reputation and the capability of the firm in all these other ways which enables them to make more money so someone's got to do it right someone's got to do it so like even if you're doing what may be considered more than your fair share that means that someone's doing less and yeah. arguably then if they're fee earning then all you've done is freed them up to do some mm. fee earning exactly. so like nothing's ever really lost right no. it's just like you can't add or take anything away in a closed system and if you are um if you're doing that and someone else isn't doing it then they should be doing fee earning work so yeah again like you'd think it's probably just around transparency around that because if you could literally call that out and say look yeah, I did. I did ten hours of this, um, but I, William was going to do five, and I was going to do five, and instead he just did ten of fearing work. Mm. So what's the problem? Exactly. Like, and, and what's the point in having a team and having a firm if you're not going to let everybody collectively work towards the the, yeah. the broader end goal? Because otherwise, we may as well all be individual lawyers working on our individual matters by ourselves in silos. I think that's something as you've just picked up on that I think is very important that we start to appreciate more is that element of diversity and allowing people to do what they like and what they're good at. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, you you touched on like sort of looking at problems as why people leave and all of those kinds of Mm. things. And like obviously feeling frustrated around the fact that maybe there's a lack of appreciation of these differences. But Mm. interestingly, when you look at like, if you categorize people who leave into two camps, you've got desirable and undesirable leavers. Mm-hmm. Desirable leavers are people that the firm wants to get rid of. Yeah. Undesirable leavers are people who left the firm, the firm wanted them to stay. So looking at why undesirable leavers leave, I think is the most interesting thing mm. because that tells you as a business, what are the problems or the challenges that we face as a business that if we solve, we will retain people mm-hmm. who we didn't want to leave. And the most frequently cited things um, uh, for for lawyers as to why they leave when they were undesirable are better work-life balance, Mm -hmm. right? Obviously. Obviously. Um, Pursuit of specific practice interests. Yeah. uh, Unmet quality work standards Mm -hmm. and quality of training. Yeah. So like when you break that down, right, what does that say to you? It says uh, you're being overworked. You are not getting the kinds of work that you want to do. Maybe mm-hmm. you're getting stuck doing the same kinds of work. Uh, unmet work quality standards. So you're maybe just repeatedly doing a low value exercise and that's not being tracked or monitored mm-hmm. and quality of training. So mm-hmm. personal development. Mm-hmm. None of these things are about money. Yeah. 
none of these things exactly. are about um even like any of the traditional ways that you would approach these problems as a business like they're they're not relevant like what people actually want is more balance they want to to do a better job and they want more control over their work mm. and so like i don't know i you you mentioned how um lawyers leaving is like an expensive problem and it is like a ridiculously expensive problem and these are the this the the things that we should be solving so it's um it just reframes the whole discussion i think it's yeah. like like why are people leaving it's not oh because they got some higher paid job at some fancier firm like i remember people um saying to me like if they left uh, to go and get more money it was because they were like well i'm working these long hours anyway like i might yeah. as well get paid more for it it wasn't that like that was their real preference it was that they felt like if i had to work these hours yeah i should maximize the money anyway yeah if there's um, no better way of doing this then yeah, i may as well get paid more for exactly. it exactly and like i've got a friend who recently went to work for a, a smaller firm they're still in london but it's like more of a boutique style mm-hmm. firm than than a larger international firm and he calls me all the time and he's like this is amazing like I actually work like nine till six and and that's it and like he he gets paid roughly the same he did at his old firm and he's just like you're almost so so brainwashed into thinking that like this is it like you're so mm. so lucky to be here and you're so so unbelievably replaceable yeah um that like you should just take it as is and I just don't think it's true um and like since I left law and and I'm speaking as someone who really enjoyed like huge parts about my job I loved Mm. the technical challenge I loved um at times I really loved like the intensity of it and like um really getting stuck into these problems um but since I left like I've noticed huge differences in my mental health like I'm so much more relaxed Mm. like the best way to describe it is every day feels like a Friday wow yeah (laughs) excuse me um and and it's just like why is that and it's not because I didn't like my job it's just because there's so much stress mm. and pressure placed on you and you don't realize it until it's gone sometimes so I think um yeah it's just interesting I think like uh the, the industry's got a lot of work to do basically um yeah. but I think that's what's so interesting and exciting about being a lawyer at this time I agree. I think we've got so many exciting things coming and changes on the horizon. But I suppose a question that I would love to ask you before we wrap up and I finish off with the rapid fires, which is always fun, <laughs> um, is if you were a junior lawyer now, like a trainee going in with things as they currently are, so current state of play, what advice would you give yourself now about how you could set yourself up for the best chance of success without anything necessarily changing right now in the industry? Um, so first of all, I would, I would take a step back and ask yourself, what, what does success look like to you? Um, because it's different for everyone. And I've got some friends who genuinely, success is becoming a partner. Mm. So everything else uh, is secondary to that. So they are, I'm, I suppose, not necessarily happy, but willing to make a lot more sacrifices than I would have been, for example, in order to meet that goal. So I think ask yourself what success looks like. And if, if success is becoming a partner and um, being like moving up the ladder in the, in the legal corporate environment um, or wherever you're working, then it's more a matter of trying to, to mitigate some of the challenges uh, that you might be faced in trying to attain that goal. Um, whereas if your goal is more like, and so what I would do in that instance is like scheduling some meetings that are actually just time for you to have a break. So even if that's 15 minutes every three hours, like if you want to be really like that, that I don't think that's anywhere near enough, by the way, but mm-hmm. let's say you're not even getting that at the moment. Let's start small and say, look, let's schedule in a 15 minute break, sort of mid morning make sure you have at least half an hour for lunch. I mean, an hour should be what you're entitled to, right? Contractually. Um, So half an hour as a minimum and have your lunch away from your desk. Like the amount of people I see eating lunch while working is just ridiculous. 
Um, and then again, another break in the mid afternoon and then some time off in the evening. So as a bare minimum, like try to, to schedule in some breaks and then over time, try to increase those a bit to a level that then you find provides you with more balance. Mm. If you are not someone who is putting your career absolutely first maybe you're more thinking like yes I care about my career and yes I want to do well but I'm not willing to completely sacrifice uh, myself for that goal um, or less willing I suppose then what I would do is set expectations like I would I would I would behave in a way that you feel comfortable with and just accept the consequences of that whatever they may be and what you'll find I think is that some people um if you're like me that's what i did so like i i took a view even as a trainee that of course i'm gonna stay as long as i need to if it's absolutely necessary but i do not subscribe to presenteeism whereas other people were like afraid to leave if their supervisor hadn't left Mm. or didn't want to be the first one to leave the office i was more like if i've done my work for the day i'm i'm going home like i don't care as long as it's after half five I don't care what time it is if it's half five on the dot I'm out like that's fine and some people uh, really look to that negatively in some teams um and and you just take that on the chin like you can't you can't please everyone if you do you'll sort of kill yourself trying um if if, you, if that's what your goal is so so just behave in a way that's consistent with how you want to live and you will find your groove like you will find the team that that accepts that and, and embraces that. You will find the individual lawyers in the firm. And there are lots in every business who live that way. Um, and you can, you can exist in that environment behaving that way. Don't feel like you can't just because some scary supervisor sometime uh, said that that was completely unacceptable. Um, the challenge with that is you do have to um, bear the brunt of, those conversations and those issues and it's 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 a real difficulty so um that's that's what i would say if it, if you're looking to maximize your career then just small changes slowly over time to try to find a bit more balance um otherwise i would just stick to your guns and uh, uh work in a way and act in a way that that is consistent with how you want to live because i mean your life is uh, is not some target in the future or some unattainable goal you're that your life is as some parts of how you live each day. Mm. And so there's no point to keep deferring these things. Like you need to make these changes and live every day how you would want to live your life as a sum. And mm. so um, I, I would say that's how I would approach it. And for me, that that seemed to work. I found the team that suited me. I found the subgroup within the team. I found um, work that I, I, I like doing, all, all being sort of true to how I wanted to, to, to live my life. And so give it a go. Um, I, I don't take any responsibility if it doesn't go well. Um, <laughs> pl- please don't uh, message me um, um, saying that you've, you've been fired or something. Um, but always, always open if people do want to chat, obviously, um, on a serious note. So please drop me a line if you'd like to talk about any of these things. Very sage advice. Thank you. And I think just to add, I mean, I know that for a lot of people, it is really difficult to to do those things and have those conversations, but those are skills that you can learn. And so if those are things that you would like to put in place and would like to implement, likewise, it is always possible to reach out to me or to Will and to ask us. I think either of us will always be happy to help wherever we can. And I think that is a lovely note to end the bulk of our conversation on. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to ask you the series of rapid fire questions, if that's okay with you. Before sure. we tie up. All right. So work-life balance means? Not carrying your work into your personal life. Like um, not feeling like you can't switch off. Mm, nice. I like that. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? I think we know the answer to this. Yeah, I mean, uh, work allocation. Okay. <laughs> Mic drop, end of podcast. <laughs> yeah. uh, are you reading anything at the moment? If so, what? Apart from yeah. all the studies and pieces of research. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm always reading Alan Watts. Excellent. Yeah, so I'm reading Alan Watts at the moment for in, infinitum. So that's what I've always got on the go. So nice. I, if anyone is interested, I think the book is called... Um, wisdom in the age of insecurity 
And not only is it just the most wonderful book, this guy is the most enjoyable writer uh, to read. The way he he speaks and presents uh, arguments is just incredible. So if you're into like philosophy at all or this kind of stuff around mental well-being, then then he's your guy. Check him out. Amazing. I'm going to put it on the website. Thanks Great. for that tip. Um, what's one new hobby that you would love to try? Uh, ice walking. Oh. So like, I've been watching a lot of documentaries about like climbing Everest and stuff. And like, obviously I'm not going to do that, right? Like I'm, <laughs> I'm, way, too, I'm way too anxious of a person um, to, to go climb Everest. But basically um, I want, there's a place in Scotland where you can learn how to do it. And I've got a friend who lives in Scotland who does it in the winter. Um, so yeah, I want to learn ice walking. Amazing. I love that. All right. One thing that the world needs more of is positive mindset. Excellent. One thing that the world needs less of is um, CO2 emissions. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Uh, I hope everyone's got their renewable energy sourcing, <laughs> whatever electrical device they are currently listening to this on. Money being no object, what is one other career that you would have loved to pursue? Uh, philosophy professor. Yeah, I can see that. Alan Watts would be proud. Yeah. Uh, is there a quote or a saying that you love? And if so, what is it? No surprises again, Alan Watts. Um, so it, I think it goes along the lines of trying to describe yourself as like trying to bite your own teeth. Oh. Yeah, I like that. Very meta. Yeah. Love it. One. Yeah, it's a really good one. Um, what is one thing that you do to look after your well-being? Uh, I meditate. Um, I, I went to uh, people that this is one way to for people to think that you're uh, got a screw loose, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I went to um, a 10 day silent meditation camp a couple of years ago mm. uh, of a Vipassana. Uh, if you're interested, check them out. It's it's amazing. All the things you think will be hard, like no phone, no talking, no eye contact is honestly incredibly nice. Um, mm. The thing that's hard is the actual meditation. It's like 10 hours a day. So yeah, real hard work, but really rewarding. And I do yeah. that every morning. Yeah. Yeah. It's on my list to do, but I am actually frankly quite terrified. <laughs> yeah. I think I might yeah. go insane. It's probably, well, the thing is like, that's what I was worried about too. I was mm. like, um, I'm quite stressed in day-to-day -day life. This is back when I was still working in law. Um, if this is how I feel when I've not, not distracted and I just feel a bit tense, how am I going to feel just sitting in that state for 10 hours a day? What I actually found was that um, I'm not like that as a default. That was caused by work. Mm. And also, I don't know if this will make any sense, but you sort of reconnect with a version of yourself that I only recognize from being a child where mm. everything's quite playful. Like you see the world through like rose tinted glasses almost. Mm. And I feel like when you strip away the noise um, mm. of everyday life and all of the pressures and stresses and responsibilities, that's what you're left with. Mm. And um, you can really reconnect with that if you if you do something like this. So I'm sure people who go on like long hikes or bike trips yeah. or anything out in nature will have the same experience. But meditation is just another way to connect with that in daily life from yeah. anywhere, really. Totally, totally. Okay, two more. Okay. One day that you will never forget is? Um, the day when my... SEIS advanced assurance came in for our business and I realized I could quit my job. Mm. Um, it was the most thrilling yet anxiety inducing moment in a long, long while. I just didn't know what to do with myself. Yeah. I realized there was no more excuses. It was time to time to do it. And it's, yeah, it sticks really strongly in my mind at the moment. It's just so exciting. It's like mm. the first time I felt like a chapter closing on my life um, in live time. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, pretty cool. That is really cool. And finally, one thing that you are most grateful for right now is? Uh, my cat. And sorry to any like dog lovers listening. Like I'm a dog <laughs> lover. I grew up with dogs and uh, never had cats. We accidentally got a cat during lockdown. Um, our accidentally flat... how? Yeah, well, yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? You can't just say that, can you? No. Um, so our, our flatmate had a cat that didn't live with us and eventually brought the cat to live with us. And this cat just was hating it. They're so territorial, right? When you move yeah. houses, it's not good news. So the cat was living under the sink for like 10 days, didn't come out. Um, and so this guy's dad had just had kittens 
and brought one of the kittens from the house to try to for familiarity or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we had this kitten in the house. And when you've had a kitten in the house for like six weeks, there's no letting it go. So yeah. we tried, we started taking photos to like put it up to, to get rid of it and stuff. Um, and we just couldn't bring ourselves to do it. So now we have a cat. Nice. What's it called? It's called Jasper. Jasper. It's a good yeah, name. He's very sweet. He, um, he purrs all the time. He purrs at his food. He purrs when he's like walking away from you, when he's walking towards you. He just sits with me all day, either on my lap or behind me here. And just, yeah, so nice. So that's my kind of cat. Yeah. He's a real chiller. Big time. Excellent. Just like me. And you yeah. not. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, that has just been the best conversation. If anybody is wanting to find out more about capacity or you um, or wants to get in touch, how can they do that? So either on LinkedIn um, or at william at capacityapp.io, very trendy. Um, and yeah, just drop me a line. We, uh, we are pre-launch of our product. So we're actually not, not live in the market yet, but we will be sort of at the end of summer. Um, so the, if, if you are on LinkedIn you'll, and you connect, you'll see a lot more stuff in due course. Um, but a lot of exciting news imminently. We're just doing our investment round and growing our team and all sorts of good stuff at the moment. So just about ready to, to launch. Such an exciting time. And I really do encourage anyone to check it out. It is going to be so exciting and stay tuned to those updates. Will, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. We made it. If you stayed to this point, thank you. And I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really helps and I'm always super grateful for your support. You can stay tuned with all of the Law Life Balance updates at www.law-lifebalance.co.uk, including the show notes and links to all of my wonderful guests. And if you particularly like today's guest, do follow them through their channels and reach out if you want more information. I'll see you back here soon for the next episode of the Law Life Balance podcast.